Well, we're going to continue with our misunderstood series this morning with Proverbs 22 6. Uh, I loved seeing these uh, young ladies come and testify to their faith in Jesus Christ. I loved uh, the involvement of the dads and the involvement of the parents. I love that moment where the kids and the parents both come together and say, uh, we want to raise our children to know Jesus Christ. It's a great moment because parenting is not an easy task. And so I love when uh, men and women say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to entrust this difficult task to the Lord. Uh, if you're like me, uh, my introduction to parenting was a bit of a rude awakening. Uh, I asked my oldest daughter, who is now a teenager, if I could share this this morning. I will say this, the first six weeks of her life feel to me now like one extremely long day. Uh, people told us before we had a child, hey, you know, for a little while, you're not going to sleep a lot. You're not going to get a whole lot of sleep. And I remember thinking, you know, when I was in college, sometimes I stayed up late, and uh, sometimes I, you know, I might have pulled an all-nighter or two. I can handle a, a little bit of sleep as opposed to a lot of sleep. But uh, people don't tell you, there is an ocean of difference between choosing to stay awake and being forced to stay awake because a tiny person is screaming in your ear for hours on end. I mean, there's just a huge difference to lose control of one of the most basic needs that you feel you have in life, which is to sleep. Uh, I remember being up for hours in the middle of the night with Elizabeth, our oldest, when she was a, a baby, and she would just cry and cry. And so I would just, I would circle the house, and I would sing songs. I would sing one song, and then another song, and then a third song, and then a fourth song, and then I'd run out of songs. So I'd go back to the beginning songs. And uh, some of you have had this experience. Kids have also an internal altimeter where uh, you cannot sit down either. Right? So I would try to sit down just to get some rest, and she'd immediately start crying louder. And I'd stand up, and she'd get quieter again. And finally, she would, she would drift off to what appeared to be a peaceful sleep. Right? And so you would walk into the room where the crib was, and you would ever so slowly do this right? and lower her down to the mattress, and then your fingers are stuck. Right? So you would go like this so she felt no motion and begin to tiptoe out of the room at which point she'd begin to cry again, and you'd start it all over. Right? And I remember that feeling of, man, I have no control over my life. At one point, I told my wife, I said, you know, I miss just being able to sit down in the evenings and read a book quietly. And she said something to the effect of, I think for a while, you're just going to have to allow that part of you to die. <laughs> and I thought, that part of me, like, that is me. Like, that is me. I have just died <laughs> because you feel out of control right now. She sleeps pretty well now and she's made it past that stage. But, but I will say one thing that doesn't fully change uh, as your kids get older is that that feeling that, man, I'm not really in control of what's happening. Right? I may have influence in their lives, but I'm not really in control of what's happening. So I pray that God will lead my kids to know Jesus. And I do my best, and my wife does her best to model what it looks like to follow Jesus. 
But we're not in control. And maybe you have felt that before. And, and I think a lot of people feel that way. And the reason I know a lot of people feel that way is because there is an entire industry of books about how to train and raise your kids so that you can get the outcome that you hope for. That they have a job, that they stay out of prison, that they know God. I mean, if you go search parenting on Amazon, you will get millions of hits. How to raise babies, how to raise toddlers, how to raise teenagers, how to deal with artistic kids. I saw one this week that was something along the lines of how to train your easily frustrated and chronically inflexible children. I thought, man, that could be really helpful. I don't know how I'd explain to my kids why I'm reading it. (laughs) Son, you are chronically inflexible and easily frustrated. So that's why I bought this, right? But I mean, there's a whole industry around how do we get the outcomes that we want when we're trying to train our kids. And I think that feeling of I am out of control also leads us to open the scripture. And that's a good instinct. We say, okay, what does the Bible say about parenting? And the Bible has a lot to say about parenting, about how fathers and mothers ought to raise their kids. There's a lot in there. But I think if we're not careful, we often open up the scripture and we're looking for guarantees that if I do the right things, my kids will turn out a certain way. The passage that we're looking at this morning has, I think, become one of the most misunderstood and and unintentionally misused passages in the Scripture. Because when we feel out of control and we are looking for guarantees, we grab on to a passage that sounds like a guarantee, but doesn't necessarily offer one. That's Proverbs 22.6. We're going to look at it this morning. And here's what I want to do. Like every week in this series, we're going to go through how is it typically understood? Why is that interpretation off the mark? And then what does it mean? What does this passage mean for us? How can we apply it to our own lives? For those who are parents, how do we apply it right now as we're raising kids? For those who will be parents as you think about the future. Proverbs 22.6 is a passage that uh, you are no doubt familiar with. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Great passage. Here's what I want to look at for a few minutes then. How is this passage typically used? How is it typically understood? And just like uh, last week, I'm going to give a few quotes for how this passage is typically used. These are, these are from pastors or others that I found on the internet. Here, here's one illustration. A, a man named Jonathan Crosby says this, Child training works. You can make your children great in the sight of God and men. A properly trained child will fear God and live a wise and righteous life as an adult. Do not question this promise. It is a promise, not a possibility. If trained consistently, they will revert to their training as an adult. Believe it. Count on it. Right. so what is he saying? Right input, right output, right? If you train them right, they will revert to that as an adult. 
Let me give you another illustration. Sarah Beth Marr. The way we look at Proverbs 22.6 is really a reflection of our faith in the God of the universe. As we reflect on His character, goodness, faithfulness, and love for us, we can count on Him to keep our children aiming in His direction. Be encouraged today that we can bank on Proverbs 22.6 as a promise. Okay, so let me, let me give you one other. This is from an anonymous uh, letter that was written to focus on the family, kind of a Q&A. This is on the Q&A section of their website from a parent who says this, doesn't Proverbs 22.6 promise that kids who are raised properly by their parents will turn out all right? That's not been our experience at all. Our college-age son walked away from his faith a year ago and started engaging in some extremely destructive behaviors. Now his younger sister seems to be following in his footsteps. We're a Christian family, and we've always tried to raise our kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Where did we go wrong? So how is this passage usually understood then? Here's how I would summarize the typical interpretation of this passage. Parents who raise their children according to God's word have a guarantee that their children will become God-honoring adults. Now you read that and and from an experiential level, of course, you go, no, I know that's not true, right? All of us have friends or family who say, you know what? I did everything I, I knew to do. I prayed for them. I talked about Jesus at home. We read the scripture together. I tried to model a life of faithfulness, imperfect faithfulness, but faithfulness nonetheless. And yet my kids are grown and they've walked away from the Lord. I recognize, as, as even as we talk about this passage this morning, that for some of you in this room, it's a deeply sensitive and painful subject. Because you say, man, I, I did all I could do. And yet, I didn't get the outcome I hoped for. And so, so you wonder, when, when I read a passage like this, what do I do with that? For others, your, your kids are smaller. They're still at home. And maybe you read a passage like Proverbs 22.6, and what it translates to you is pressure. I have to do it right. I got one shot. And if I put the right inputs in, I'll get the right output. If I put the wrong inputs in, I'll get the wrong output. Because all too often, this is how Proverbs 22.6 is understood, as a promise, as a guarantee that we, we raise our children correctly, they'll do the right thing as adults. So how do we reconcile what is often our experience of parenting, which is we really are in control of a lot less than we think, but also recognize that as parents, we have a great deal of influence on our children to recognize that, that quite often, in fact, probably most of the time, our kids will emulate what we believe what we do. How how do we reconcile those things with this passage? Well, what we're going to talk about this morning then is how do we look at Proverbs 22.6? And we're really going to broaden this a bit because I think this is going to help us when we read the book of Proverbs in general. If you remember when we started this series, one of the things I said was I want to help us get better at biblical interpretation as a whole. So this morning, we're going to look at how do we understand Proverbs in general, and then how do we understand this particular passage. So, so let me walk through a few reasons why the usual interpretation misses the mark, all right? Here's the first one. first one is this. 
Proverbs are not meant to be guarantees. Now, I want to say this clearly. Okay, when I say they're not meant to be guarantees, I am not saying that the Proverbs are untrue, right? We, We believe in the inerrancy of the Scripture. We believe every word is God's word, right? It's all true. But we also recognize that the Bible is written in different genres, right? Different forms of literature. And so when we get to the Proverbs, we need to recognize what the Proverbs are is they are sayings about life. Think about the Proverbs. In fact, it tells us at the beginning of the book, these are the words of a father, King Solomon, to his son, right? And and what he says is, if you follow the pathway of wisdom generally your life will go better than if you follow the pathway of foolishness, right? So in the Proverbs, you have a couple of people really that are set up in the Proverbs. There's, there's three main characters. There's the wise person, right? The man of wisdom. The man of wisdom follows God's way. There's the foolish person. The foolish person resists God's way. He has a thick skull, right? I I ran across a proverb uh, this week that essentially says, you know, with a fool, you could put him in a bowl and pound him like grain, and you won't pound the foolishness out of him. That's the fool. And then there there is the youth or the naive, the young person that is trying to decide between these paths, right? And so the purpose of Proverbs is not to make guarantees about what will happen, but instead to say to the naive, the young person, hey, you're trying to decide, where do I want to go with my life? Should I pursue the pathway of wisdom or the pathway of foolishness? And he says, here's some reasons why you should pursue the pathway of wisdom. Right, so what Proverbs are, most of the Proverbs, is a series of sayings. Okay, we have sayings like this in our own language as well, in our own culture. Let me, let me show you just a few of them. All right, so here, here's one. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. Now, I will tell you, I eat at least an apple every day. I have one with breakfast every morning. Sometimes I have an apple in the afternoon. I love apples. Sometimes I still get sick. Right? And when that happens, I go, no, it says it right there. Look, it says it right there. An apple a day keeps... The... Some of you in this room are doctors. I eat apples every day. You keep coming here, right? Okay, so, so is this... When we hear this, do we say, man, this is an airtight medical promise? Because people who eat apples still get sick and die. No, it's a saying. Generally, you eat fruit, you're probably going to be better off than if you eat a lot of candy, right? We understand that. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. Here's another one. Early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise, right? I go to bed relatively early. I I wake up relatively early. I, I am relatively healthy. I like to think I'm wise, right? So two out of three, right? So, uh, some of you, you look at this and you go, man, I, I'm, I, I'm wealthy, maybe, and, and I like to think I'm wise, but, but I'm not very healthy, right? Some of you, you, maybe you're 0 for 3, and you go, man, I go to bed at 9 o'clock every night. Doesn't work for me, right? But it's a general principle. We understand that when we, when we hear that. On the average, you go to bed early, you wake up early, you're going to be healthier. Generally, you're up, you're working early, you're going to make more money, and you're wise to do it. Right? It's a general principle. Let me give you just a couple more. Good things come to those who wait. 
Sometimes, right? But sometimes not. Sometimes you might have to be persistent. Sometimes you might have to uh, insist that, that things happen on a certain timetable. Good things come to those who wait. Yeah, generally, but not always. Here's another one. A picture is worth a thousand words, right? Probably coined by a photographer, right? And so uh, is that always true? Well, what, what is it saying in general? You can describe something a lot. You show a picture. Oh, now I see what it looks like. But we also know that some pictures tell us lies, right? And we see that in the media all the time. So yeah, it's generally true. It's not always true, right? So, so this is what the Proverbs usually are. Let me give you some illustrations from the book of Proverbs. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. Now, does anybody know somebody who is generous and yet is not prosperous, is not wealthy, who has struggled financially? You probably do. Right? Generous people are generally prosperous. Why? Because when, when you give and you exhibit generosity toward others, they are going to be motivated to be generous back to you. Right? So when you are generous, you develop relationships with others, and God blesses your life in general, but not always. Right? Let me give you another one. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. You see this concept in the book of Proverbs a lot. So you read that and you go, okay, why does a man like Hugh Hefner live to be 91 while a man like the missionary Jim Elliott dies at 29? Is this a promise or is it a principle? It's a general principle. Generally, if you follow God's way with your life, the way of wisdom, generally, you're going to live longer. You stay away from dangerous, sinful, risky law-breaking behaviors, you're probably going to live longer. But it's not a guarantee. One more. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. So does this mean that everybody in Israel who did a good job got to meet the king? A lot of you guys, are you're, you're very skilled in your work. Have you ever met the president or a king? Some of you maybe. All of you? No. General principle. Okay, so this is what the Proverbs are. They're not intended to be guarantees. In fact, they're very plainly not intended to be guarantees. They are general sayings about life. All right, so uh, the usual interpretation misses the mark on the nature of Proverbs. Secondly, usual interpretation misses the mark uh, because the meaning of this particular verse is not 100% certain. Now, the reason that I bring this up uh, is this, uh, because I think any time we're going to take a hard and fast principle from a verse, we need to be sure that we have, we have understood correctly what it says. All right? and, and the challenge with this particular verse is that the translation of the verse is a little bit hard to suss out from the Hebrew. All right, let me, let me show you what it literally says from Hebrew. Okay, it says this, dedicate a youth to his way, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, most of your translations probably say, train up a child in the way he should go, or, or dedicate him to the right way, or something like that, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's because as it's written in the Hebrew, it's really tough to look at that and go, what do you mean, dedicate a child or a youth to his way? What way? 
His way, God's way, what is it? Right? So, so some people read this, and here's, here's how they understand this, this verse. They say, here's what this is saying. Okay, if you have a child, you, you want to learn about their personality, their strengths, their weaknesses, and sort of help them find that pathway that best fits their gifts and strengths. That's one understanding of the verse. I don't personally think that's the correct one. All right? And the reason is because in ancient Israel... They were not as concerned with self-actualization as we are in America in the 21st century. In other words, the goal was not, hey kid, take the Enneagram, right, and a few uh, tests, and we'll find your personality and your strengths and, and get you off in the right direction. That's, that's a much more modern understanding of how we train kids. Other people say, uh, train a, a, up a child in his way. What they say is this. What the passage is saying is, look, if you just dedicate a, a kid to do his own thing, whatever he wants, then when he's old, he won't depart from it, right? So, so you, you, you raise a stinker of a kid, you're going to have a stinker of adult, in other words, is what it is saying. Okay, that's one possibility. And then there, the third possibility, the most common one, is the one that is in most of our Bibles, which is dedicate a youth to the way of God, or a way of saying it is start them off. This word dedicate kind of also means initiate. Start them off on the right path. Start them off on God's path. And when they're old, they'll stick with it. I do think that's probably the best way to understand it. And the reason is uh, because uh, there's a couple of reasons. One, this word dedicate, it's very intentional. Right? You don't have to dedicate a kid to do whatever they want to do. They're, they're going to do that if you do nothing. Right? So, so that, but also generally in Proverbs, uh, foolish people who follow their own path, they don't have the opportunity to get old. They die. Okay? So, so I do think in general, this passage is probably saying, look, if you set a child off on the right path, on God's path, they will stick with it when they are old. But the reason I bring up the options is this. Uh, we ought to approach a passage like this with humility, right? So somebody is struggling with their kids or struggling in parenting. Or maybe their kids are grown and they're struggling and you say, man, did you read Proverbs 22.6? That's what it says. It's a promise. And my point is this, to approach a passage like this with a degree of humility to say, you know what, we're not 100% certain that the way we're reading it is accurate. It does tell us something about parenting. And again, there's a general principle, but we hold it loosely that we understand exactly what it's trying to say to us. Okay, thirdly, usual interpretation is wrong uh, because children bear responsibility for their own choices. Okay, children bear responsibility for their own choices. Here's what I mean. You bear responsibility to be their parents, of course. You, you have the responsibility to raise them and train them in the way of the Lord, right? But in the final analysis, especially once they're grown, they make their own decisions. Those of you who have younger kids, you know even now, sometimes you tell them to do something, you model something, you, you explain to them why, and they still do their own thing, right? So I was thinking this week, I'm a native Texan. I grew up in Texas. I love Tex-Mex. I love tacos. At least two of my kids don't like them. What did I do wrong? I mean, we eat them. We eat them at least once a week, if not more. We eat them a lot. We explain the benefits to our kids, okay? Why it's important to like tacos, why they're good, why you should love them, why this is part of your heritage as a Texan, right? And the nights I have lain awake gone, going, what, what did I do wrong, right? The shame this brings on our family crest, 
is unbearable. Well, no, they, they make their own choices, right? They're, they're human beings with the opportunity to either do what is right or do what is wrong, to believe in Jesus or to reject Jesus. To some degree, they make their own choices, right? And you see this even in the Scripture. There are illustrations of this throughout the Scripture. In fact, in the book of Proverbs itself, at the very beginning of the book of Proverbs, I want, I want you to see how the book of Proverbs begins, chapter 1. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. Now, as you read that, the question you should ask is this. If Solomon thought that there was no chance that his son could make a choice to walk away from God. If Solomon thought, look, if I do the right things, I say the right things, my sons will do what is right. 100%. Would he have started his book like this? With this kind of plea? No, there would be no need. He'd just say, you know what? I'm doing what's right. I'm training it up the right way. But he, but he appeals to their ability under God's authority, to make a choice. And in fact, Solomon's sons, especially Rehoboam, walked away from the Lord. Solomon himself, later in his life, walked away from the Lord. All right, so, so our children are responsible to some degree for their own choices. You see this over and over throughout the scripture. It's interesting, Josiah, the, the, the boy king Josiah, one of the godliest kings in Israel, had an evil son named Jehoahaz who rebelled against God and chose not to follow him. And yet Josiah himself, it's interesting, Josiah's father Amon and his grandfather Manasseh were two of the wickedest kings of Israel. And yet Josiah said, no, I want to follow God. Right? Uh, parents have influence, but they do not create destiny. They do not control to the degree that we would sometimes like to think. Because, because each of us before God ultimately is responsible for the choices that we make to follow Him or disobey Him, to trust Him, not to trust Him. I have some friends who have uh, multiple kids. I, I, I can think of one family in particular, godly, godly family I respect deeply, who prayed for their kids and trained their kids to know Jesus. Right, and two of the kids grew up and went into Christian ministry, and they're walking with the Lord. And the third walked away from God. Same parents who raised their kids to know God, but we don't control outcomes. And so this typical interpretation, I think, misses children are responsible for their own choices. And then fourthly, I think it misses the mark for this reason, because even God the Father has rebellious children. All right, is there any greater father on the planet, or in the universe, I should say, than God? Well, no. In fact, one of the most sustained metaphors about God in the Scripture is that He is our Father, right? He is the Father, and as fathers, we represent God the Father, right? He's, he's the first Father, the best Father, the perfect Father. And yet His children rebel, right? Not just once, but over and over and over. I want to show you a passage from Hosea chapter 11. 
where God describes his relationship with the nation of Israel. Read these words. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. All right, that word youth, that's the same word, by the way, as Proverbs 22, 6. A young, young man, a, a young adolescent boy. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they, that is the prophets, called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. I bent down and fed them. You hear the heartache in God's voice. I'm their dad. When they were small, I'm the one that knelt down and and I fed them. I led them along so that that they would be safe as as I led them out of Egypt. I loved them deeply. I held them in my arms like a father. I taught them to walk. And they disobeyed. And they chose a path that was destructive to themselves and rebellious against God. So if God the Father can have sinful, rebellious children, so can the godliest of human parents. So when we take Proverbs 22.6 as a guarantee, I think we, we set ourselves up either for disappointment or for inordinate pride. We either feel deep shame if, if our children choose a path that is not God's way, or we feel this, this pride and sense of superiority when they turn out well. But it's not intended to be that kind of a guarantee. Right, so the, the usual interpretation misses the mark. So then the question is this, what, is, what does the passage actually mean? What does the passage actually mean? Here's here's what it actually is getting at. As a general principle, children raised to know and obey God will become adults who know and obey God. As a general principle, in other words, you have influence, but you don't have control. We see see this principle work its way out in the Scripture, especially in, in a negative way. And here's what I mean, is that parents who don't train their children, parents who leave their children to their own devices, almost invariably, in fact, do have kids that do whatever they want to do when they are grown, right? If there is no effort made, then, 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 and statistics will bear this out, if there is no effort made, you'll get the results that correspond to that effort. Let me show you uh, an illustration from the scripture. King David, right? King David, godly king in Israel. He had a lot of sons, one of his sons was named Adonijah. Adonijah was a man who, when he grew up, tried to usurp the throne, right? David actually had a couple of sons who did this. Uh, one was Adonijah. The other was a man named Absalom. Here is what First Kings said about Adonijah. I want you to see this. Now, Adonijah, the son of Hagith, Hagith is his mom, exalted himself saying, I will be king. Now listen to this next part. His father, David, had never crossed him at any time by asking, why have you done so? And he was also a very handsome man. And he was born after Absalom. Now why does he point 
that out because Absalom was also known as a handsome man. In fact, Absalom had this long flowing hair that uh, eventually uh, he hanged himself with on accident, but he had this very long, beautiful hair. And Absalom grew up and he rebelled against his father. And now the writer of 1 Kings said, oh, it happened again. He was born after Absalom. And yet David made the same mistake twice. And what was the mistake? As Adonijah's growing up, David never goes to him and says, hey, hey, you're headed in a dangerous direction. Hey, why'd you make that decision instead of this decision? Hey, why did you choose the path of foolishness, Adonijah, instead of the path of wisdom? It says David just said, hey, Adonijah, whatever works for you. Why? Probably because Adonijah was handsome. Adonijah was charismatic. He was the kind of kid that you wanted to give him leeway. And so David did, and it was destructive. All right, so, so you see this general principle work its way through the Scripture, not an airtight guarantee. But I, I do think all of us at times have seen this play out in real life, right? You're at the playground with your kids, and there's, there's some kid there that is just, just a, a terror, right? He's biting the other children. He's punching them in the face. He's stealing stuff from the playground. And you see his parent over there, and you look over there, and the parent is going, ha, he's such a high-spirited, funny kid. And you go, no, he's a felon, right? He's going to end up in prison because you won't step in and say, no, not that way, this way, not this path, this path, right? So, so that is a general principle in the scripture. You leave them to their own devices. They will continue along that path. But there's also a general principle that works its way out in the scripture that while they are young, we have an opportunity to train them to walk in the ways of Jesus Christ. To save them from the heartache of a life of foolishness. That's what Proverbs is saying. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 18. Discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. You see what he's saying? If you do what David did with Adonijah, you are looking for trouble. And you don't have your kid's best interest at heart. So while there's hope, while they're young, step into their lives in an active way and train them to know the Lord. Again, there's not a guarantee, but there's a general principle. In general, parents who say, I want to know Jesus Christ. I want to follow the Lord. I want to to model in our home what it looks like to be a a family that follows the Lord, that lives with integrity in how we approach one another, integrity and, and obedience to God with our money and with our bodies and with our time and with our energy. In general, children will follow. And again, there are statistics that 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 back up this general principle. This is from uh, the National uh, Youth Inst- Institute of uh, Youth and Religion. They say just 1% of teens ages 15 to 17 raised by parents who attached little importance to religion were highly religious in their mid to late 20s. So in other words, what they're saying is if you, if you at home attach very little uh, emphasis 
on your walk with God, right? You say, you know what? It, it doesn't really make a difference once we get home, whether we read the scripture, whether we pray, whether we walk with God. It doesn't really make a difference whether we attend church or not. If that is your approach, then you have basically statistically a 99% chance that your kids will follow suit, right? There are some kids that grow up in very irreligious, non-Christian homes who grow up to know the Lord, but it's a minority. On the other hand, 82% of children raised by parents who talked about faith at home attached great importance to their beliefs and were active in their congregations were themselves religiously active as young adults, right? So, so there's, a, there's a general principle at work, but notice 18% still went their own way. So the, the, there are some families, and, and there may be a family with five kids and four of them follow Jesus. And one of them goes their own way. But there's a general principle at work. Right? That, that as we seek to know Jesus Christ, as we seek to walk with Jesus Christ, in general, our kids will follow. It's a general principle, but not a guarantee. And, and as you look at the research, in fact, and, and, and I want to mention this as well, the most important aspect that researchers have determined in this dynamic actually is not what you tell your children they should do. It's actually what you do. That, that what happens is that the kids tend to model more who you are than what you say. So if, if we say you should go to church, you should go to youth group, you should do all that religious stuff, but we don't do it. We don't follow Jesus. They don't see us reading the scripture. Don't see us engaged in prayer. Don't see us prioritizing our walk with Christ. They will probably not prioritize it either. When I was a college pastor, um, you could set your clock in the fall about two weeks in by the fact that I would begin to have parents of freshmen call me on the phone and Every time the conversation would go something like this. Hi, my son has started at A&M or Blinn or wherever, and they are not going to church, and I want them to go to church. Can you call them and make them come <laughs> to your church? I got at least two or three of these every, every fall. And I, I, would, I would have to explain, well, I can't do that. Right, because there are, there are 60,000, 70,000 uh, students around here. I, I, just, I don't call all of them. And I don't know how to explain when I call them. Because the, the caveat was always, just don't tell them I told you to call. Right? <laughs> how do I explain that? What am I going to do? Right, but see, see, underneath it was, was always this, this angst. Right? And I think some of the angst was coming from parents who, who had prayed. And they had trained their kids. And they were afraid, and so, so they were still clinging to control when they, when they couldn't see them. But then there were a few, there, there were others, that, that as you began to ask questions, it, it became apparent that it wasn't until this moment that they wanted their kids really to prioritize walking with the Lord. So when they were growing up, they didn't see their parents 
prioritizing going to church, prioritizing reading the scripture, prioritizing their walk with the Lord. And so what's happening now? The child is, is doing what the child was trained to do. Again, general principle. Some of those kids showed up later. Some of them didn't. Some of those kids whose parents were faithful and prayed, they wandered away. But, but the temptation that I think all of us have is what can I do for a guarantee? What can I do to control? And, and that's not what the Proverbs are. And in fact, the Scripture doesn't give those guarantees. It's a principle, not a promise. And, and, and as I say that this morning, I hope, I hope two things happen. I, I hope for those who have older kids who have wandered away from the faith, and, and you say, you know what, we, we prayed, we, we tried, we, we taught them, and yet they've, they've wandered away. I hope, hope this lifts some of that shame. Right? Even for those that, that you say, you know what, I, I didn't do that, and I wish I had. Here's what I hope that you will hear, is that God is in control of their lives. And, and also hear this, it's never too late. You have grown kids, you think they don't still pay attention to what you do. You think they still don't want to hear from their mom and dad. They may say they don't, but they do. So I hope this lifts the shame. I hope for those who have, who have younger kids, it lifts some of the pressure. But I also hope it provides for us a sense that it's a high responsibility to raise children to know God, to know Jesus Christ. Because we have an influence, but not control. Let me offer a few principles then as we close by way of application. Again, as a general principle, children raised to know and obey God will become adults who know and obey God. So, so what do we do in response? First one is this, pray for your kids. Pray for them every day, many times a day. As you're at work, as you're doing housework, as you're mowing the lawn, as you drift off to sleep in the night, when you wake up in the morning, pray that God will move and shape their hearts to know him. Secondly, Follow Jesus faithfully and teach your children to follow Jesus faithfully. If you have kids and you're in here this morning and maybe you saw these kids testify to their faith in Jesus Christ and you thought, you know, I don't know if I could help my kids to do that because I don't know Jesus. I'd say the beginning of this journey is is for you to say, I want to know Jesus Christ. I want to know that I have eternal life. And so the beginning of this journey for you is to say, I I trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins and eternal life. And then to say, what I want to make my life about is to know him better and to help others, including my kids, to know him because I want my life to have an impact. And so you begin to arrange your life around knowing his word and around trusting him and around spending your time and energy in knowing and proclaiming him. And see if it makes an impact on your kids and on your family. When you begin to know Jesus faithfully, then the words that you say about knowing Jesus have credibility and impact. So begin to follow Jesus. Train your kids to follow Jesus faithfully. And then then lastly, trust God with the results. You can't control the choices your kids make. You, You simply cannot. You see that when they're small. You see that when they're grown. You you don't have control, but you have influence. 
So you trust God to move in their hearts and in their lives. And so we have a responsibility as parents before God, but we are not God. Right? And it's a great and awesome responsibility, a fearsome responsibility, but we're not God. And so we, we recognize that responsibility, but we also can remove the guilt and the shame and the pressure to say we trust him because they belong to him and not to us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, we are grateful for the reminder that you are in control. Father, I pray, especially if there are any in here this morning, parents or not, who do not know you yet through Jesus, I pray this morning would be the the beginning of their life with you. To trust that Jesus died for our sin and rose again so we can have life. Father, I pray for parents at every stage of the journey, whether everything's going wonderfully, or whether their kids are struggling, and and maybe for parents who are struggling with guilt, with pressure, with shame, maybe even parents who are tempted just to be lazy and allow their kids to pursue their own path. I pray you would strengthen the weak, encourage those who are in grief, convict those of us who might be in sin. Father, allow us to trust you and obey you in our lives and with the children you've entrusted to us for a period of time. We're grateful. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.